Hey everybody, Mike Garrigan here. Just wanted to remind everybody about my Stage It show coming up on April 9th, 2016. It's a Saturday night online at stageit.com. If you have an internet connection, you can probably watch it. Um, yeah, it's pay what you can. Just go to stageit.com and check it out. Anyway, let's have a show. This is the Mike Garrigan Podcast. Welcome to episode 7 of 24 in the Transitions podcast series from MikeGarrigan.com. My name is Mike Garrigan. At the beginning of 2016, I found myself in a familiar place. Ozzy Osbourne and his amazing collection of solo albums had once again commandeered my iTunes. I listened to little else for a few months. The grandfather or godfather of heavy metal, um, as some call him, he has much to offer in defining what you could call the, quote, heavy metal worldview, end quote, uh, which is the lens through which fans and musicians of heavy music see society, community, and the rest of the world. What, for example, do the two-pronged horns made with one's fingers actually signify? What does the speed and precision that is native to heavy metal music even mean? What ideas inform the long hair and patch-covered jean jackets from the 1980s? And today, what does it mean to be a metal fan? Is it a retro fascination? Is it a permanent mindset? Is it something else? On this show, I'll consider the socio-political context of the heavy metal worldview vis-a-vis the catalog of one of the big four metal bands and one of my favorite bands, Megadeth. But first, let me explain um, what caused this exploration. Uh, let's go back to Ozzy uh, for a second here. Now, when I listen to Ozzy Osbourne on extended runs, which happens about every 18 months, I know that just around the corner lurks some second obsession, one that's related to the first. And one time, uh, this listening turned into a, a four-month Kiss immersion. And I think that had to do with both Ozzy and Kiss being at the height of rock and roll spectacle. Uh, another time, my interest in Ozzy transformed into a two-month replay of Motley Crue's greatest hits. And on this last Ozzy long play, I found myself drawn to the production on Diary of a Madman, which owes much of its sound to a producer, engineer, and mixer by the name of Max Norman. Although Norman was involved in the mixing of Ozzy's debut solo album, Blizzard of Oz, when he took the helm as producer on Diary of a Madman, he made valuable improvements to how the songs came across on tape. And uh, when I listen to a Max Norman production, I hear clean, tight drum and bass portraits that leave uh, ample space for heavy guitars and clear vocals. And for me, that was the, the defining difference between Blizzard of Oz and uh, Diary of a Madman. Uh, a few notable works that Norman produced uh, are the debut album from Dangerous Toys, a very underrated metal record, uh, Wicked Sensation by George Lynch's Lynch Mob, 
and Ozzy's Bark at the Moon, the first Ozzy record to feature Jakey Lee. Norman's greatest production achievement is perhaps his work with Megadeth, uh, including mixing Rust in Peace, as well as producing their most commercially successful album, Countdown to Extinction, and the platinum follow-up, Euthanasia. When I was in the 10th grade, I remember going on a Math Counts field trip. This was sort of a uh, math competition where you'd get a test and it'd be really hard, and the, the winner was the one who got the most questions right, and I, I didn't win at all. Um, but anyway, in the minivan, uh, we were allowed to listen to our cassette Walkmans, and uh, I recall on that particular trip, uh, that was when I grew attached to Megadeth's album Rust in Peace, which had come out about a month before, and I listened to the tape for the two hours to the competition and on the two hours back from the competition, pausing a few times in that last hour to lick the AA batteries <laughs> to get just a few more minutes with the album before I ran out of juice. And that next summer, my brother Joe and I, we went to uh, the Clash of the Titans show at the Cumberland County Civic Center in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And uh, at that show, a new band on the scene, Alice in Chains, opened the night and the three co-headliners uh, rotated each night uh, for the next three positions. It was kind of a cool situation. And the band to play last that night was Anthrax, who was touring in support of Attack of the Killer Bees, which is, I think, the longest EP in history, if that's possible. Uh, the band before Anthrax was Slayer, who was touring in support of Seasons in the Abyss, a seminal metal album. And the band that opened the headlining phase of the night was Megadeth, who was playing in support of Rust in Peace. On stage that night during Megadeth's set was, of course, frontman Dave Mustaine, who I'm pretty sure was playing a Jackson Flying V guitar. On his left was bass player and founding member uh, David Elfson. And behind Dave was a new drummer named Nick Menza, who was the son of legendary jazz saxophonist Don Menza. And to Dave's right was a new guitarist, Marty Friedman, who was the former co-lead guitar player with the legendary Jason Becker in the band Cacophony. It's no surprise that Megadeth, uh, in my opinion, was the best band of the night. Uh, Menza and Elfson locked in like a freight train, a well-oiled uh, train that was attached tight to a turning track, passing through these lyrical scenes of the impending apocalypse. And uh, Friedman and Mustaine, the arguable metal analog to John Coltrane and Cannonball Adderley, uh, traded licks with fluidity and grace. And I'm going to stand by that analogy, but I'm sure it will offend some. Uh, Mustaine sang about the distrust of government, the First Amendment, and mutually assured destruction. At the end of the set, he held his flying V up as an acolyte would hold a crucifix at the end of a Catholic mass. And instead of silence and prayer, the crowd of thrash metal heads with their torn jeans and black t-shirts worked into a frenzy of applause and cheers. This was the church of heavy metal, and we had all been baptized. The band name Megadeth is a respelling or misspelling for the sticklers out there, of the scientific measure of casualties from a nuclear explosion. In the Cold War, scientists rationalized that 
people would die in the millions as the result of nuclear war, and mutually assured destruction was a unique threat felt most prominently by the children of the 80s who, like me, grew up with the constant and real possibility of being annihilated at any second by the Soviet Union. Uh, by using this name, Megadeth put itself in a unique position to comment on social ills. And even more interesting is that if students and the youth of today look specifically to the Megadeth catalog, they can see both the expression and evolution of the heavy metal worldview. Now, there are four successive albums in the Megadeth discography that, in a historical sense, uh, offer a succinct and entertaining definition of heavy metal and what it means to be a heavy metal fan. And I'm going to look at those now. Peace Sells, But Who's Buying?, uh, released in 1986, gets a well-rounded introduction to the heavy metal worldview. The, the album cover features Megadeth's mascot, whose name is Vic Rattlehead, and he's standing behind a for-sale sign, and behind Vic stands the embers of a nuked United Nations building. Vic represents a few things. He is a skeleton whose eyes, mouth, and ears are covered by a metal covering, and this is supposed to represent the proverb of the three monkeys, which is see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. In our society, the proverb usually points a finger at persons in power who act immorally and pretend that they didn't know anything was wrong. And Vic is short for victim. Rattlehead is what Dave's mom called a headbanger, which is the aggressive head movements in which many a metal fan partake when they're enjoying their metal riffage. And the album begins with a song, Wake Up Dead. It's about an extreme reaction to the infidelity of a significant other. But then the record moves into variations on the occult. Um, and the pulse of the album, though, uh, and what it really seems to be saying is, is in its portrait of a political system that has failed. And Mustaine claims that the name Megadeth to him means the annihilation of power. So if we look to, to peace cells as the foundation of, uh, or a foundation of the heavy metal worldview, we see that metal lives in a dark place that's full of mistrusting and deviant forces. I think the reason my friends and I loved this album is that Behind the 1980s, that was the Back to the Future and the Police Academy. Uh, uh, there was this underlying threat of annihilation that I meant, mentioned before. And uh, surely a political system that permits this kind of threat must be somehow amiss. In that respect, uh, Peace Sells, but who's buying the album, sort of balanced the, the tables of perception for me. The title track of the album was also uh, the lead-off single, which was quite successful. If you watched MTV at all between 1987 and 1991, you've at least heard Elfson's bass intro for Peace Cells. It was the MTV News musical tag. A year before Peace Cells But Who's Buying was released, the Parents Music Resource Center, or PMRC, formed. This group 
had the good intention of finding a way to inform parents of, quote, dangerous, unquote, content, like the material found on Peace Cells. If an album contained a song that referenced drug abuse, sex, and or violence, the PMRC wanted a parental advisory explicit lyric sticker on the front of the record. In a heated congressional hearing in the summer of 1985, arguments for and against the labeling caught much media attention. Frank Zappa, John Denver, and Dee Snyder of the band Twisted Sister were among the notable witnesses who opposed the PMRC. In November of 1985, the Recording Industry Association of America agreed to put parental advisory stickers on releases that fit the criteria suggested by the PMRC. The two negative effects of the advisory stickers were, one, an arguable violation of the First Amendment, which states Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And, two, many big-box retailers refuse to carry the albums with explicit lyric stickers. Uh, The effect is that this sticker severely curtailed the audience that would purchase an album, thereby censoring and abridging free speech. This also had a severe impact on an album's return on investment. Today, getting an explicit lyric sticker on your album isn't such a big deal. Uh, Most people steal the music they love anyway, so that's actually the bigger problem. But but back in the 80s, it was a big deal. And, you know, today on iTunes, you are required to indicate if your work contains explicit content. But the digital retailers don't disallow music to be sold if it has explicit lyrics. Megadeth's So Far, So Good, So What, released in 1987 and produced by Paul Lanny, and Dave Mustaine, contains a scathing song pointed at the PMRC. In an interview in Spin Magazine, Dave Mustaine stated that the song Hook in Mouth is aimed at those who are around with our constitutional rights and trying to take away our freedom of speech. The song specifically names uh, the PMRC at the end of a litany of what freedom means, And it's one of the band's best songs and one of the best metal moments I can think of on a record. So Far, So Good, So What features a transitional lineup with Mustaine and Elfson continuing from Peace Cells and Jeff Young and Chuck Beller uh, completing the respective guitar and drumming duties. Also, the cover version of Anarchy in the UK features Sex Pistols guitarist Steve Jones on a guitar solo. That adds to its authenticity, I think. Uh, As an expression of the heavy metal worldview, so far, so good, so what, holds that First Amendment rights are sacrosanct and inviolate. Uh, The worldview also puts a value on anarchy, or at least the idea of limited government. And I I remember seeing the Circle A symbol, which represents anarchy, at, at many metal concerts in the 80s, not just the Clash of the Titans show. In So Far, So Good, So What, the the heavy metal worldview is also one that seems conflicted. Uh, Anarchy and constitutionalism 
don't really mix, although my wife Holly and I had a long debate about this uh, concept the other night. Um, but the premises at face value seem to be at odds with each other. Uh, but of course they don't make sense together. Uh, in the heavy metal worldview, the world doesn't make sense. In November of 1983, one of the most realistic make-believes of what a nuclear attack might be like appeared with the made-for-TV movie The Day After. It starred Jason Robards, Joe Beth Williams, and Steve Gutenberg. In the film, near the beginning, is a fictional nuclear detonation uh, over Kansas City, and, and mass panic and firestorms annihilate the city. And I, I remember as an eight-year-old, everyone on the playground the next day at school was talking about this. I don't know if the film engendered more fear or helped make sense of the feeling in the air, but that movie is an important cultural moment because I think it expresses the terror that we, the children of the 80s, grew up in and faced on a daily basis. Earlier that year, the, the movie War Games, starring Matthew Broderick, uh, touched on those same fears, although it played more to the culpability of artificial intelligence mixed with a societal nuclear threat. Now, it's, it's a better movie than The Day After, but War Games didn't have the punch and the realism of the former. What both War Games and The Day After accomplish is express just how on the edge we were to global annihilation. The theory of deterrence held that because the United States of America and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics both had thousands of nuclear missiles pointed at each other that their mutually assured destruction would prevent one nation from launching an attack against the other. Ironically, it was through the race to build weapons that we ensured peace. The thing we always talked about on the playground was that if a nuclear war happened, it would happen big and no one would probably feel anything. Probably. But then I remember in college, you know, maybe a decade later, when we read about the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you'd hear about people's hands melting and their fingers dripping off of their hands because the radiation dispersed uh, unevenly. <laughs> um, so maybe that was wishful thinking. Uh, but growing up in this terror is one of the things that, that I think brought rise to thrash metal and heavy metal and the heavy metal worldview. In some ways, the loud, fast, aggressive music is a response to a subliminal, constant threat. It would be very hard to say how much is uh, causal and how much is correlative, but uh, <laughs> as the threat grew, uh, the music got faster. Megadeth's 1990 album, Rust in Peace, is one of the best expressions of heavy metal in the history of the genre. It features uh, ferociously accurate and virtuosic playing from all four members of the band. It appeared before the digital recording age. I presume it was recorded with no Pro Tools, no ADATs, no quantizing, no autotune. Everything is real, everything is urgent, and everything is amazing. The album cover is one of Megadeth's best. It features Vic Rattlehead standing with what looks like uh, plutonium, which is a main ingredient in nuclear weapon, in one hand, and in the other, it's resting on a cylinder that contains an alien. 
Behind Vic are uh, five world leaders, uh, among which include John Major, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, and George H.W. Bush. And they appear in, in uh, I guess, what appears to be these expectant and engaged poses. It's as if they are participating in some kind of negotiation with Vic, or perhaps they're buying this stuff from Vic. If Vic is the personification of the heavy metal worldview, he appears to be in a position of power here. In a way, this is heavy metal sticking it to the man. <laughs> uh, the heavy metal worldview is one that sees government through a conspiratorial lens. It also decries, for obvious reasons, the threat of nuclear weapons. If there's one Megadeth record I'd recommend to anyone who's interested in the band, and I hope by now you might be, if you weren't before, um, but maybe you're not sure which of the 15 albums to, to listen to, Rust in Peace is an excellent introduction. It was produced by Dave Mustaine and Mike Klink, and uh, Klink produced this album in between his work on Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction and the Use Your Illusion albums, which were also very important metal records. And uh, this record was mixed by Max Norman. Uh, Rust in Peace is the first album to feature the aforementioned uh, Marty Friedman and drummer Nick Menza. The clarity of Norman's mix, coupled with the fact that the band was firing fast on all four cylinders, makes for one of the most exciting metal records I can think of. The opening song, Holy Wars, The Punishment Due, is progressive thrash at its best, with only perhaps Metallica's Master of Puppets, rivaling it in complexity and delivery. The album doesn't only feature nuclear threat as one of its themes. Secret government cover-ups and magic also make an appearance. But generally, one can hear a thread of condemnation for the nuclear threat we faced. With two successful singles, Rust in Peace pushed Megadeth into the spotlight. They sold a million copies of the album, and it positioned them to play to a wider audience. In 1991, grunge broke. Bands on the periphery outside the mainstream unfortunately disappeared. Uh, metal bands like Metallica and Megadeth, um, they sold most of their albums post-1991, which is kind of interesting. Metal bands that uh, I guess you could classify as more hair metal, like Warrant and Winger, who they had success uh, in the, the subgenre of hair metal, but when they released records post-1991 that were capable, such as Dog Eat Dog or Pull, uh, they got boxed out. Megadeth, interestingly, appeared in the midst of this metal extinction with an anomaly of an album called Countdown to Extinction, which was a marriage of commercial con considerations and their thrash roots. What do I mean by that? Well, one day I was coming out of chemistry class as a junior in high school, a friend of mine from the debate team, who had not a metal bone in his body, was singing an atonal version of Symphony of Destruction. I remember sitting alone at lunch that afternoon asking myself, what just happened? I mean, metal uh, in a legitimate, unadulterated form had just it, it hit the mainstream again. Metallica's Black Album had paved the way uh, for metal's commercial presence, uh, the difference here, however, was that Metallica's commercial music was typically introspective with songs like Nothing Else Matters or Sad But True or The Unforgiven. But this new Megadeth album 
it was another scathing commentary on broken politics and systemic corruption. In April of 1990, uh, it was the 20th anniversary of Earth Day, and that made quite a media footprint. The excesses of the 1980s brought rise to a newly invigorated environmental movement among Gen Xers. The title track, Countdown to Extinction, uh, plays to the environmental trope, but not in a way that assigns fallacy to it, but rather the song participates in environmental awareness. The album cover for Countdown to Extinction was the first Megadeth album not to feature Vic. Uh, he would be absent from the front cover for the next three albums, which were also multi-platinum sellers. Instead is a picture of an aged man ascending into the air inside of a prison cell. Uh, in terms of heavy metal worldview, Countdown to Extinction, it raises all the old themes that we've seen in previous Megadeth albums, with the exception of environmentalism. But more importantly, here we find an outlook that has ceased to evolve and is itself facing extinction from cultural changes. In that respect, by 1992, heavy metal, as we knew it, experienced it, and saw it, it ceased to evolve. It remains frozen there today, and that, that is why I think, even today, legacy metal bands are making albums that are more like their early 1990s counterparts than their mid-80s analogs. In 1994, there was this emergence of new metal with the band Korn and its followers. And new metal is different from thrash metal in that it features low-tuned guitars, really clicky bass, and, and singers that kind of sound like Cookie Monster instead of the soaring operatic singing uh, of classic and thrash metal. Um, the new heavy metal bands were often lumped in with the alternative rock movement. It was very hard to market. Both Tool and Korn were featured acts at Lollapalooza 1997, which was a musical festival that founded itself on being an alternative rock forum. It wasn't a metal forum. And in this post-metal world, we've, we've also come to experience bands like Tool uh, propel the art form into a spiritual realm with an album like Lateralis, which is really more like a heavy Pink Floyd or, or Rush concept than thrash mentality. So with Countdown to Extinction, we see the heavy metal wagons circled and standing their ground. Countdown is a more polished presentation than Rust in Peace with a focus on hook and vocals. Uh, Countdown also seems to lack a central theme. It has a songbook quality, which is the format that most legacy metal bands would adopt post-1992. The three Megadeth albums that followed Countdown to Extinction mark a common thread among metal bands. With euthanasia and cryptic writings, uh, they played fairly close to the Countdown to Extinction approach. The result was two platinum-selling albums. On the other hand, when the band experimented and tried something different, it backfired. Risk, Megadeth's 1999 album, and last release on Capitol Records, embraced fresh instrumentation, segues, a melodic single, and a generally slower feel. Fans and critics lambasted the album as, quote, cheesy, end quote. In retrospect, 
I rather liked the album, although in 1999, it did seem like Megadeth was stepping out of thrash metal and into the alt-rock scene. A similar thing happened to Metallica when they tried to get back to basics and, and make a garage album, Saint Anger. Uh, this album has no guitar solos, a controversial, albeit original, drum sound, and an unparalleled rawness for such a massively successful metal band. Uh, fans hated it, and Saint Anger was an inside job. It came from the band's creative space, and it didn't try to play it all to the alt-rock thing at all, but it still it stepped outside of the metal mold, and its fans disowned it. Uh, even for bands that had an established base, if they strayed from what the base expected, the sales were abysmal. Uh, from around the late 1990s through the middle of the first decade of the 20th century, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, and Anthrax each featured new frontmen in spite of the best efforts to still be the bands they had grown to be in the 80s. Oddly, Slayer seems to be the only band that stayed the course, although uh, on Diabolus and Musica, they did slow their tempos and, and drop their strings a little bit, um, <laughs> which did offend the sensibilities of some, but for me, it sounds like Slayer. Um, around the end of the first decade of the 21st century, we began to see uh, these legacy metal bands uh, return to form. Megadeth's uh, United Abominations, Metallica's Death Magnetic, and Anthrax's Worship Music are, are all a return to classic thrash, or at least the best they could do with classic thrash. And in 2009, Megadeth released what, what I think uh, was their best work since Rust in Peace. The album Endgame features James Lomenzo from White Lion, as well as a guitar player who came to be the closest uh, to filling the shadow left by Marty Friedman's departure. Chris Broderick plays with a greater precision than both Mustaine and Friedman. However, he doesn't have the, the signature fluidity that we find with Friedman's playing. And instead, I guess the way I think about it is on that record, Dave is fast, Chris is faster. <laughs> and the uh, confluence of content, intensity, speed, and purpose makes Endgame a masterpiece. Uh, and jumping forward uh, to, to 2013, Megadeth's album Super Collider, we see some of the same backlash from the band's experimentation with outside sounds and concepts uh, that fell outside of the heavy metal worldview. Now, one of my favorite songs on Super Collider, it begins with a banjo interlude, and it goes into this dark piece after, after that. And in spite of the darkness, um, the banjo doesn't seem to fit into the heavy metal box. And um, also, the single and title track, it shows one of the most pop and commercial tracks we've ever seen from Megadeth. It's kind of a weird song, too, because it feels like it's been produced for the late 90s instead of today, but I, I like it personally. Uh, the album ranks low on the totem pole for many fans, so... Uh, if you don't mind Megadeth stepping into other styles, it's quite good. Uh, Kingmaker, the leadoff track, and the Thin Lizzy cover are worth the price of admission, so I'd check it out if, if you're interested. Um, but anyway, uh, the end of 2015, Megadeth released their 15th album, Dystopia, and the album has sold well and is well-liked by the metal community. On the cover, we find Vic Rattlehead a a as a regulator with a katana and 
he looks like he's in the future, and um, it's kind of cool. It, the, the, the cover really drew me in. Um, but if there's one critique I have of modern metal production, it's that everyone seems to be using the same drum samples. The playing is also quantized, either slightly or severely. That, that means that 32 uh, note or the 32nd note kick drum performance, those fall exactly on the beat. And it kind of sounds like a machine gun sometimes. But um, the guitar tones are also a little homogenous. Uh, much more so than they were on the classic metal records. And this doesn't cancel out the content or the playing or the expression that's on the albums. They just sound a little more similar between bands than I'd like and than I remember. So on this podcast series, uh, Transitions, I've made a, an overt effort to be random and non-conclusive <laughs> um, for whatever reason, but... You know, when we go around uh, in traffic or uh, th through our day, when we make the two-pronged finger sign to people, and when we bang our heads in jest, and, and when we recognize the power of a mullet, we, we, we're referring to a segment of our society who were children of a continuous nuclear threat. And even when we make fun of that, uh, the survival of metal mores and their assimilation into postmodern society is a, is a testament to the resilience of the human spirit. You know, it's like what Ricky Rackman said. He was the host of uh, MTV's Headbangers Ball, and he would say this when he would sign off at the end of the night at, at 1.30 in the morning, keep one foot in the gutter and one fist in the gold. That, to me, is the heavy metal worldview. The threat is real. The Mike Garrigan Podcast is brought to you by MikeGarrigan.com.